Listener Production. So I still have issues breathing through my nose. And that's frustrating for me, right? Because I spend most of my days teaching women how to run and talking about running and doing podcasts. And all of those things require me to be able to breathe properly. And so for a really long time, I'm talking years, I've wanted to have surgery to fix that. So I want to be able to breathe more effectively, but I also want my nose to look better. So my current nose was formed out of a flap of skin from my forehead, right? It's called a forehead flap. So they literally cut a section out of the forehead above my left eye. They twisted it down and put it on my nose. And so that operation was actually four operations in itself. I had a delay in my forehead. So basically they they cut it so that blood supply is is maximized. Then they do it again. So So they cut the forehead again just to maximize blood supply. Then they did the flap. So they twisted the forehead down onto my nose to make a nose shape. That piece of forehead stayed on my nose for, I think, four weeks. Then they had to have another operation to put the forehead back to its original position, but it left a chunk behind, right? So on my forehead, I'm missing a chunk of flesh because that chunk of flesh is now on my nose. And so that operation, that forehead flap operation, or those series of operations for the forehead flap, were remarkable, amazing, and they were undertaken by my main surgeon, uh, Professor Peter Hirsch. He's an absolute legend. And so if I think about my nose right now, there's nothing actually wrong with it, but it would be awesome if I could breathe through it and I'd love it to look more symmetrical I don't know if that makes me a hypocrite because I'm always talking about like, you know, owning yourself, being being proud of who you are. And I am proud of myself and I do own myself, but I'd also just like to look more conventional. And I also don't know if this is a desire that's something that I want or if it's something that is informed by our unrealistic beauty standard or if it's something that I feel like it's it's part of the requirement to be accepted by society. I, I, I don't know. And so you can probably tell I spent a lot of time thinking about this and overthinking this. So since the forehead flap operations, I've had a lot of surgeries to help make my nose better. And those surgeries involved um, you know, going under anesthetic to have laser surgery, which helps to make the skin more supple, getting fat injected into my face to help make it more supple and pliable. I've had bits of my ears taken off to be put into my nose in an attempt to make my nostrils a little bit bigger. I've probably had six operations, six more surgeries for my nose. And I don't know if you remember, but you know, there was that time a couple of years ago where I had to get the medical records for my nose to give to surgeons and I saw photos of myself straight after the accident and I found that really upsetting. Um, and you know, so, so it's not, it's not been a really straightforward process. And emotionally, it's been quite hard as well. And so 
while all of the surgeries I've had up until this point have all been great, they've all been good, most surgeons have been reluctant to do the bigger work. So I don't know if you remember when I was talking about blood supply and I had to do the delay in my forehead to make sure there was enough blood supply to the flap. So most surgeons are reluctant to do it because they're like, what about blood supply? Like, how will I get blood supply? They're always talking about blood supply. And then what usually happens is the surgeon that I've been recommended to see says, oh, this actually isn't in my wheelhouse. And then they recommend me to see another surgeon. So I've been bounced around a lot like a ping pong ball. And when you see a specialist, it might be like a four-month wait before you can get in and then they need a lot of paperwork and it's not like going to see a GP around the corner, right? They're not always conveniently located. So it's actually a lot of time to go and see a specialist. It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of money to go and see one. It's, it's, it's quite emotionally draining for me as well. So last year I saw another surgeon and he was really great. He was energetic and enthusiastic. He was open to questions. He asked me about my history with my nose. He inspected it. He wasn't sure if he could help and he recommended that I see another surgeon. But he also called Peter Hirsch, the amazing, remarkable guy. He did most of the heavy lifting with my nose and he did some research and he sends me all of his notes, which are really helpful. And then it's a process of I had to wait more months before I had to go back to Sydney to see this other surgeon. And before you go and see a surgeon for a consult, actually this is how I feel anyway, it's really stressful because I try to be positive and hopeful. I try and look nice and well presented, which is embarrassing. It's like I think if I look more put together, if I look like I've got my shit together and I look nice, that's somehow going to increase my chances. And so for this consult, I had to fly down from Cairns for the day. Um, yeah, and I, I try and get into this really positive, you know, looking forward to its state of mind. And in the waiting room to hear, to wait for this specialist, I heard the receptionist say on the phone, someone must have called up and she said, Oh, the, the doctor doesn't really do any reconstruction work. And I'm just thinking, well, why the fuck am I here? And I see this doctor. And he, he looks like Steve Jobs. He's got the same turtleneck, same round glasses. He looks at me. He says there's nothing he can do for me. And I ask if I should come back in case of medical advancements. He says no, nothing. Um, so he, he obviously has zero interest in helping me. And I thank him, thank the receptionist, walk out with a smile on my face and then burst into tears when I'm out the front door. And it's, it's because it's such a demoralizing process. You know, it's most things in my life are a bit like a dog with a bone. I'm, I'm very persistent, but the process of getting my nose fixed is demoralizing. And I think that I'm wondering to myself, like, all of these doctors are saying they can't do anything. So maybe you've reached a point where you should, where you should take on board what they're saying and see this as closure. 
Now, Michael also happens to be in Sydney because he had to go away for helicopter training and it happens that we're on the same flight back home, which is good. We sit next to each other. He squeezes my hand. I'm crying. And I I do what I usually do, right? I, I remind myself of everything that I'm grateful for. My kids, my health, my Michael, my work, my friends, my family. And it doesn't actually help. It's it's probably more exhausting because trying to remain upbeat and to remember motivational quotes like, when there's a will, there's a way, is just really fucking exhausting, especially when you're drained and wrecked. And it's it's emotional because you build yourself so much – you know, I build, I build myself up so much before a consult. I try to be positive. I try to be palatable and enthusiastic and intelligent. And you, it's like you cook up all of this hope and then the doctor just takes a big fucking baseball bat to it and smashes your hope palace to the ground. And it's, I guess it's better than false hope. You know, a, a palace made out of cards and one breath is enough to make it all come tumbling down. You know, at least they're being honest, but I'm, I'm pretty exhausted. I'm just fucking over it. And a couple of months later, a, a little spark of hope reignites in me. And so I send some more emails and these ones are to a nose reconstruction expert in the USA. And I've actually met this guy before. He was in Australia years ago and Professor Peter Hirsch wanted me to go and see him and I saw him um but he's retired now he's retired but he recommends two doctors and I email both of them and one of them never gets back to me but one of them does and it's a doctor in Baltimore in the USA and so it's it's one more shop and for me I've got the mindset of, okay, if I go to the US and this doctor says nothing can be done, I'm going to accept it. I'm not going to pursue it any longer. It's it's a lot of time and money and energy. And like I said, it's an emotional roller coaster. And I feel a bit melodramatic saying that because it's, it's not life-threatening. No one I love is in danger. I'm not in danger. But I also understand why people say don't get your hopes up because when the outcome is not as expected you're really disappointed and that's hard for me to reconcile because I've got I've got such a persistent and dogged approach to everything so it's really hard for me to reconcile so I make an appointment with this guy in Baltimore I try not to think about how I feel about it I I I compartmentalize I carry on still breathing and smiling and laughing and working and and doing all of my normal things. I don't know if it's healthy or not to compartmentalize, but that's just, that's just what I do. Cause if I think about the whole extent of what I've been through, I feel like I would unravel like a long loop of sticky tape that's run out of stick. So I just don't go there. I just keep going on with my life. And if I can, if I have the luxury of time and space and people around me who love me, then yeah, I I do allow myself to feel upset, like on the plane home from the doctor with Michael. 
But right now I'm traveling to this consult in Baltimore. So I've got to get from Cairns to Sydney, from Sydney to LA, from LA to Atlanta, from Atlanta to Baltimore. I'm going to be away from my family and my friends and I'm going to be squashed into places with hundreds of strangers I'm passing through. So I, I can't lose my shit. And I know I'm lucky and I know I'm in a privileged position to be able to make an appointment with a surgeon on the other side of the world and then to have the autonomy over my time so I can physically be at the appointment and have a team who can make sure things keep running in the background. And I am from a wealthy country, right? I'm from Australia. We've got an amazing medical system and it's only because of the medical system, and it's only because of our medical system that I'm even alive today and that I have the, the functionality and the independence that I have. It's all due to the medical team who worked on me. So statistically, I am lucky. But I also, I also don't think it's fair, right? I don't think it's fair that 12 years on, I'm still going through this shit and I've got to take time away from my life and my beautiful kids to go and see a surgeon on the other side of the world. And I tell myself, well, stop, stop bloody whinging, Terea. Like you're the one who wants to go and see this, see this surgeon, which of course isn't really helpful. So I try and talk to myself like I talk to my sons and, you know, try and talk to myself with love and kindness and warmth. So like I said, it's just been, it's just been months of thinking and overthinking. The plane lands in Baltimore and I head to the hotel and Hakavai is starting his first day of primary school. And I'm not going to be there. And I'm just filled with rage because I'm... Because of what's happened to me, I'm... I'm, I'm missing out on these milestones in my son's life. And I feel like I've been really good about it so far. I've missed people's birthdays and engagement parties and weddings and all sorts of stuff. But I really hate missing my son's first day of school. And my heart shreds like cheap toilet paper. And I jump online and I just see everyone's photos of their kids. You know, mum's taking photos of their kids and saying things like, so proud of you, good luck in your first day of school. And I, f- I feel like a fraud. So I take some deep breaths. I imagine the rage is waves and I don't fight it. Instead, I just try and change the, the visuals. I try and lower its intensity. I imagine the threatening storm receding. I imagine the sun bursting through the clouds. I feel its warmth on my shoulders. The ocean turns from a stormy grey into a translucent palette of greens and blues. I'm at the beach with my family and my little boys are running around and I'm calm. And I order room service, I set my alarm and I go to sleep. In the morning I head to the hospital with my suitcase and I sit down in the waiting room because I'm flying straight home to Australia after this. And I can already feel myself starting to get upset and I don't want to cry before I see the doctor because I've cried before seeing a doctor in the past and it makes it, it makes it really hard for me to talk. 
So I do breathing exercises. I read. I watch Michael break the surfing series on my iPad. And then the doctors are ready to see me. And the surgeon is amazing. He's friendly. He's compassionate. We've conversed over email, so he knows what I have in mind. My voice wavers when I speak to him. He comes up with a plan. Uh, he's going to release the scars on my face, around my nose, which is going to straighten the tip up a bit. It's going to debulk my dorsal hump. That's that part in between in between your eyes. By pushing it in, which is going to have the effect of giving more projection at the base, and it's going to use some rib to help with this. Um, there's a few more things that we discuss, but he reckons the nose is complex enough, so we'll just start there. And he's got a really relaxed and calm and nonplussed demeanor. It's almost as if this meeting is routine for him, which I guess, I guess it is. We're done in 20 minutes. I leave the room. I line up for the elevator. I arrive in the lobby. I wheel my suitcase with my satchel and my bags and my big coat over to the corner and I start crying again. I stay there for maybe 20 minutes. And then I put my sunglasses on in the middle of a freezing cold Baltimore winter and I catch a taxi to the airport and the operation is booked. I'll be returning in a month. And the rest, well, I'll share it with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Terea Pitt's Pep Talk. Follow to get new pep talks every day. Listener.